Section 6 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christine Rucker. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Maspin Roberts. Book 1, Chapters 40 to 48. Chapter 40. The Assassination of Tarquin. When Tarquin had been about 38 years on the throne, Servius Tullius was held in by far the highest esteem of anyone, not only with the king, but also with the patricians and the commons. The two sons of Ancus had always felt most keenly their being deprived of their father's throne through the treachery of their guardian. Its occupation by a foreigner, who was not even of Italian, much less Roman, descent, increased their indignation when they saw that not even after the death of Tarquin would the crown revert to them, but would suddenly descend to a slave, that crown which Romulus, the offspring of a god, and himself a god, had worn whilst he was on earth, now to be the possession of a slave-born slave a hundred years later. They felt that it would be a disgrace to the whole Roman nation, and especially to their house, if, while the male issue of Ancus was still alive, the sovereignty of Rome should be open not only to foreigners, but even to slaves. They determined, therefore, to repel that insult by the sword. But it was on Tarquin rather than on Servius that they sought to avenge their wrongs. If the king were left alive, he would be able to deal more summary vengeance than an ordinary citizen, and in the event of Servius being killed, the king would certainly make anyone else whom he chose for a son-in-law heir to the crown. These considerations decided them to form a plot against the king's life. Two shepherds, perfect desperados, were selected for the deed. They appeared in the vestibule of the palace, each with his usual implement, and by pretending to have a violent and outrageous quarrel, they attracted the attention of all the royal guards. Then, as they both began to appeal to the king, and their clamor had penetrated within the palace, they were summoned before the king. At first they tried by shouting each against the other to see who could make the most noise, until after being repressed by the lictor and ordered to speak in turn, they became quiet, and one of the two began to state his case. Whilst the king's attention was absorbed in listening to him, the other swung aloft his axe and drove it into the king's head, and leaving the weapon in the wound, both dashed out of the palace. Chapter 41. The Accession of Servius. Whilst the bystanders were supporting the dying Tarquin in their arms, the lictors caught the fugitives. The shouting drew a crowd together, wondering what had happened. In the midst of the confusion, Tanquil ordered the palace to be cleared and the doors closed. She then carefully prepared medicaments for dressing the wound, should there be hopes of life. At the same time, she decided on other precautions, should the case prove hopeless, and hastily summoned Servius. She showed him her husband at the point of death, and taking his hand, implored him not to leave his father-in-law's death unavenged, nor to allow his mother-in-law to become the sport of her enemies. 
The throne is yours, Servius, she said. If you are a man, it does not belong to those who have, through the hands of others, wrought this worst of crimes. Up, follow the guidance of the gods who presaged the exaltation of that head round which divine fire once played. Let that heaven-sent flame now inspire you. Rouse yourself in earnest. We too, though foreigners, have reigned. Bethink yourself not whence you sprang, but who you are. If in this sudden emergency you are slow to resolve, then follow my counsels. As the clamor and impatience of the populace could hardly be restrained, Tanaquil went to a window in the upper part of the palace looking out on the Via Nova. The king used to live by the temple of Jupiter Stator and addressed the people. She bade them hope for the best. The king had been stunned by a sudden blow, but the weapon had not penetrated to any depth. He had already recovered consciousness. The blood had been washed off and the wound examined. All the symptoms were favorable. She was sure they would soon see him again. Meantime, it was his order that the people should recognize the authority of Servius Tullius, who would administer justice and discharge the other functions of royalty. Servius appeared in his trabea, attended by the lictors, and after taking his seat in the royal chair, decided some cases and adjourned others under pretense of consulting the king. So for several days after Tarquin's death, Servius continued to strengthen his position by giving out that he was exercising a delegated authority. At length the sounds of mourning arose in the palace and divulged the fact of the king's death. Protected by a strong bodyguard, Servius was the first who ascended the throne without being elected by the people, though without opposition from the Senate. When the sons of Ancus heard that the instruments of their crime had been arrested, the king was still alive, and that Servius was so powerful they went into exile at Suessa Ponmatia. Chapter 42 His Political Organization Servius consolidated his power quite as much by his private as by his public measures. To guard against the children of Tarquin treating him as those of Ancus had treated Tarquin, he married his two daughters to the scions of the royal house, Lucius and Arins Tarquin. Human counsels could not arrest the inevitable course of destiny, nor could Servius prevent the jealousy aroused by his ascending the throne from making his family the scene of disloyalty and hatred. The truce with the Vantines had now expired, and the resumption of war with them and other Etruscan cities came most opportunely to help in maintaining tranquility at home. In this war, the courage and good fortune of Tullius were conspicuous, and he returned to Rome after defeating an immense force of the enemy, feeling quite secure on the throne, and assured of the goodwill of both patricians and commons. Then he set himself to by far the greatest of all works in times of peace. Just as Numa had been the author of religious laws and institutions, so Posteri extols Servius as the founder of those divisions and classes in the state by which a clear distinction is drawn between the various grades of dignity and fortune. He instituted the census, a most beneficial institution in what was to be a great empire, in order that by its means the various duties of peace and war might be assigned. 
not as heretofore indiscriminately, but in proportion to the amount of property each man possessed. From it he drew up the classes and centuries, and the following distribution of them adapted for either peace or war. Chapter 43. The Classes and Centuries. Those whose property amounted to or exceeded 100,000 pounds weight of copper were formed into 80 centuries, 40 of juniors and 40 of seniors. These were called the first class. The seniors were to defend the city, the juniors to serve in the field. The armor which they were to provide themselves was comprised helmet, round shield, greaves, and coat of mail, all of brass. These were to protect the person. Their offensive weapons were spear and sword. To this class were joined two centuries of carpenters, whose duty it was to work the engines of war. They were without arms. The second class consisted of those whose property amounted to between 75,000 and 100,000 pounds weight of copper. They were formed, seniors and juniors together, into 20 centuries. Their regulation arms were the same as those of the first class, except that they had an oblong wooden shield instead of the round brazen one, and no coat of mail. The third class he formed of those whose property fell as low as 50,000 pounds. These also consisted of 20 centuries similarly divided into seniors and juniors. The only difference in the armor was that they did not wear greaves. In the fourth class were those whose property did not fall below 25,000 pounds. They also formed 20 centuries. Their only arms were a spear and a javelin. The fifth class was larger. It formed 30 centuries. They carried slings and stones, and they included the supernumeraries, the horn blowers, and the trumpeters, who formed three centuries. This fifth class was assessed at 11,000 pounds. The rest of the population whose property fell below this were formed into one century and were exempt from military service. After thus regulating the equipment and distribution of the infantry, he rearranged the cavalry. He enrolled from amongst the principal men of the state twelve centuries. In the same way, he made six other centuries, though only three had been formed by Romulus, under the same names under which the first had been inaugurated. For the purchase of the horse, ten thousand pounds were assigned to them from the public treasury, whilst for its keep certain widows were assessed to pay two thousand pounds each annually. The burden of all these expenses was shifted from the poor on to the rich. Then additional privileges were conferred. The former kings had maintained the constitution as handed down by Romulus, viz. manhood suffrage in which all alike possessed the same weight and enjoyed the same rights. Servius introduced a graduation, so that whilst no one was ostensibly deprived of his vote, all the voting power was in the hands of the principal men of the state. The knights were first summoned to record their vote, then the eighty centuries of the infantry of the first class. If their votes were divided, which seldom happened, it was arranged for the second class to be summoned. Very seldom did the voting extend to the lowest class, nor need it occasion any surprise that the arrangement which now exists 
since the completion of the 35 tribes, their number being doubled by the centuries of juniors and seniors, does not agree with the total as instituted by Servius Tullius. For after dividing the city with its districts and the hills, which were inhabited into four parts, he called these divisions tribes. I think from the tribute they paid, for he also introduced the practice of collecting it at an equal rate according to the assessment. These tribes had nothing to do with the distribution and number of the centuries. Chapter 44 the work of the census was accelerated by an enactment in which Servius denounced imprisonment and even capital punishment against those who evaded assessment. On its completion, he issued an order that all the citizens of Rome, knights and infantry alike, should appear in the campus Martius, each in their centuries. After the whole army had been drawn up there, he purified it by the triple sacrifice of a swine, a sheep, and an ox. This was called a closed lustrum, because with it the census was complete. 80,000 citizens are said to have been included in that census. Fabius Pictor, the oldest of our historians, states that this was the number of those who could bear arms. Enlargement of the City to contain that population, it was obvious that the city would have to be enlarged. He added to it the two hills, the Quarinal and the Viminal, and then made a further addition by including the Esquiline. And to give it more importance, he lived there himself. He surrounded the city with a mound and moats and wall. In this way, he extended the Pomerium. Looking only to the etymology of the word, they explain pomerium as postmorarium, but it is rather a circumorarium. For the space which the Etruscans of old, when founding their cities, consecrated in accordance with auguries and marked off by boundary stones at intervals on one side, as the part where the wall was to be carried, was to be kept vacant so that no buildings might connect with the wall on the inside, whilst now they generally touch, and on the outside some ground might remain virgin soil untouched by cultivation." This space, which it was forbidden either to build upon or to plow, and which could not be said to be behind the wall any more than the wall could be said to be behind it, the Romans called the Pomerium. As the city grew, these sacred boundary stones were always moved forward as far as the walls were advanced. Chapter 45 League with the Latins after the state was augmented by the expansion of the city and all domestic arrangements adapted to the requirements of both peace and war, Servius endeavored to extend his dominion by statecraft instead of aggrandizing it by arms, and at the same time made an addition to the adornment of the city. The temple of the Ephesian Diana was famous at that time, and it was reported to have been built by the cooperation of the states of Asia. Servius had been careful to form ties of hospitality and friendship with the chiefs of the Latin nation, and he used to speak in the highest praise of that cooperation and the common recognition of the same deity. By constantly dwelling on this theme, he at length induced the Latin tribes to join with the people of Rome in building a temple to Diana in Rome. 
Their doing so was an admission of the predominance of Rome, a question which had so often been disputed by arms. Though the Latins, after their many unfortunate experiences in war, had as a nation laid aside all thoughts of success, there was amongst the Sabines one man who believed that an opportunity presented itself of recovering the supremacy through his own individual cunning. The story runs that a man of substance belonging to that nation had a heifer of marvelous size and beauty. The marvel was attested in after ages by the horns which were fastened up in the vestibule of the temple of Diana. The creature was looked upon as, what it really was, a prodigy, and the soothsayers predicted that whoever sacrificed it to Diana, the state of which he was a citizen, should be the seat of the empire. This prophecy had reached the ears of the official in charge of the Temple of Diana. When the first day on which the sacrifice could properly be offered arrived, the Sabine drove the heifer to Rome, took it to the temple, and placed it in front of the altar. The official in charge was a Roman, and struck by the size of the victim, which was well known by report, he recalled the prophecy and addressing the Sabine said, why, pray, are you stranger preparing to offer a polluted sacrifice to Diana? Go and bathe yourself first in running water. The Tiber is flowing down there at the bottom of the valley. Filled with misgivings and anxious for everything to be done properly that the prediction might be fulfilled, the stranger promptly went down to the Tiber. Meanwhile, the Roman sacrificed the heifer to Diana. This was a cause of intense gratification to the king and to his people. Chapter 46 Servius was now confirmed on the throne by long possession. It had, however, come to his ears that the young Tarquin was giving out that he was reigning without the assent of the people. He first secured the goodwill of the plebes by assigning to each householder a slice of the land which had been taken from the enemy. Then he was emboldened to put to them the question whether it was their will and resolve that he should reign. He was acclaimed as king by a unanimous vote such as no king before him had obtained. The Assassination of the King This action in no degree dampened Tarquin's hope of making his way to the throne, rather the reverse. He was a bold and aspiring youth, and his wife, Tullia, stimulated his restless ambition. He had seen that the granting of land to the commons was in defiance of the opinion of the Senate, and he seized the opportunity it afforded him of traducing Servius and strengthening his own faction in that assembly. So it came about that the Roman palace afforded an instance of the crime which tragic poets have depicted, with the result that the loathing felt for kings hastened the advent of liberty, and the crown won by villainy was the last that was worn. This Lucius Tarquinius, whether he was the son or the grandson of King Priscus Tarquinius, is not clear. If I should give him as the son, I should have the preponderance of authorities. Had a brother, Arens Tarquinius, a youth of gentle character. The two Tullias, the king's daughters, had, as I have already stated, married these two brothers, and they themselves were of utterly unlike dispositions. It was, I believe, the good fortune of Rome which intervened 
to prevent two violent natures from being joined in marriage, in order that the reign of Servius Tullius might last long enough to allow the state to settle into its new constitution. The high-spirited one of the two Tullias was annoyed that there was nothing in her husband for her to work on in the direction of either greed or ambition. All her affections were transferred to the other Tarquin. He was her admiration. He, she said, was a man. He was really of royal blood. She despised her sister because having a man for her husband, she was not animated by the spirit of a woman. Likeness of character soon drew them together, as evil usually consorts best with evil. But it was the woman who was the originator of all the mischief. She constantly held clandestine interviews with her sister's husband, to whom she unsparingly vilified alike her husband and her sister, asserting that it would have been better for her to have remained unmarried and he a bachelor rather than for them each to be thus unequally mated and fret in idleness through the poltroonery of others. Had heaven given her the husband she deserved, she would soon have seen the sovereignty which her father wielded established in her own house. She rapidly infected the young man with her own recklessness. Lucius Tarquin and the younger Tullia, by a double murder, cleared from their houses the obstacles to a fresh marriage. Their nuptials were solemnized with the tacit acquiescence rather than the approbation of Servius. Chapter 47 from that time, the old age of Tullius became more embittered, his reign more unhappy. The woman began to look forward from one crime to another. She allowed her husband no rest day or night for fear lest the past murders should prove fruitless. What she wanted, she said, was not a man who was only her husband in name or with whom she was to live in uncomplaining servitude. The man she needed was one who deemed himself worthy of a throne, who remembered that he was the son of Priscus Tarquinius, who preferred to wear a crown rather than live in hopes of it. If you are the man to whom I thought I was married, then I call you my husband and my king. But if not, I have changed my condition for the worse, since you are not only a coward, but a criminal to boot. Why do you not prepare yourself for action? You are not, like your father, a native of Corinth or Terquini, nor is it a foreign crown you have to win. Your father's household gods, your father's image, the royal palace, the kingly throne within it, the very name of Tarquin, all declare you king. If you have not courage enough for this, why do you excite vain hopes in the state? Why do you allow yourself to be looked up to as a youth of kingly stock? Make your way back to Tarquini or Corinth. Sink back to the position whence you sprung. You have your brother's nature rather than your father's. With taunts like these, she egged him on. She, too, was perpetually haunted by the thought that whilst Tanaquil, a woman of alien descent, had shown such spirit as to give the crown to her husband and her son-in-law in succession, she herself, though of royal descent, had no power either in giving it or taking it away. 
Infected by the woman's madness, Tarquin began to go about and interview the nobles, mainly those of the lesser houses. He reminded them of the favor his father had shown them and asked them to prove their gratitude. He won over the younger men with presents by making magnificent promises as to what he would do, and by bringing charges against the king, his cause became stronger amongst all ranks. At last, when he thought the time for action had arrived, he appeared suddenly in the form with a body of armed men. A general panic ensued, during which he seated himself in the royal chair in the Senate House and ordered the fathers to be summoned by the crier into the presence of King Tarquin. They hastily assembled, some already prepared for what was coming, others apprehensive lest their absence should arouse suspicion, and dismayed by the extraordinary nature of the incident, were convinced that the fate of Servius was sealed. Tarquin went back to the king's birth, protested that he was a slave and the son of a slave, and after his, the speaker's father, had been foully murdered, seized the throne as a woman's gift, without any interrects being appointed as heretofore, without any assembly being convened, without any vote of the people being taken, or any confirmation of it by the fathers. Such was his origin, such was his right to the crown. His sympathies were with the dregs of society from which he had sprung, and through jealousy to the ranks, to which he did not belong, he had taken the land from the foremost men in the Senate and divided it among the vilest. He had shifted onto them the whole of the burdens which formerly had been borne in common by all. He had instituted the census that the fortunes of the wealthy might be held up to envy and be an easily available source from which to shower doles whenever he pleased upon the neediest. Chapter 48 Servius had been summoned by a breathless messenger and arrived on the scene while Tarquin was speaking. As soon as he reached the vestibule, he exclaimed in loud tones, What is the meaning of this, Tarquin? How dared you with such insolence convene the Senate or sit in that chair whilst I am alive? Tarquin replied fiercely that he was occupying his father's seat, that a king's son was a much more legitimate heir to the throne than a slave, and that he, Servius, in playing his reckless game, had insulted his masters long enough. Shouts arose from their respective partisans, the people made a rush to the Senate House, and it was evident that he who won the fight would reign. Then Tarquin, forced by sheer necessity into proceeding to the last extremity, seized Servius round the waist, and being a much younger and stronger man, carried him out of the Senate House and flung him down the steps into the forum below. He then returned to call the Senate to order. The officers and attendants of the king fled. The king himself, half dead from the violence, was put to death by those whom Tarquin had sent in pursuit of him. It is the current belief that this was done at Tullia's suggestion, for it is quite in keeping with the rest of her wickedness. At all events, it is generally agreed that she drove down to the forum in a two-wheeled car and, unabashed by the presence of the crowd, called her husband out of the Senate House and was the first to salute him as king. 
He told her to make her way out of the tumult, and when on her return she had got as far as the top of the Cyprius Vicus, where the temple of Diana lately stood, and was turning to the right on the Urbius Clivus to get up to the Esquiline, the driver stopped, horror-struck, and pulled up, and pointed out to his mistress the corpse of the murdered Servius. Then, the tradition runs, a foul and unnatural crime was committed, the memory of which the place still bears, for they call it viscous sclerotis. It is said that Tulia, goaded to madness by the avenging spirits of her sister and her husband, drove right over her father's body and carried back some of her father's blood with which the car and she herself were defiled to her own and her husband's household gods, through whose anger a reign which began in wickedness was soon brought to a close by a like cause." Servius Tullius reigned forty-four years, and even a wise and good successor would have found it difficult to fill the throne as he had done. The glory of his reign was all the greater because with him perished all just and lawful kingship in Rome. Gentle and moderate as his sway had been, he had nevertheless, according to some authorities, formed the intention of laying it down— because it was vested in a single person. But this purpose of giving freedom to the state was cut short by that domestic crime. End of section 6